are listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Dyker. Thanks for joining me for episode 32, Argument and Reply. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. My conversation with Chris Donovan of the Retzel and Andrus Law Firm in Naples is coming up next. So, Chris Donovan, welcome back to the Issues on Appeal podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. So, when we talk about having you back, we actually did two episodes previously. We talked about appellate practice workflows, which was uh, episodes 12 and 15. And uh, those have been those were popular episodes, and we kind of reprised them in a live version uh, at the uh, Florida Bar meeting. And so we're, we're, we're we do a lot of uh, workflows. That's true. Yeah, that's uh, the the meta of our practice. <laughs> so when we were uh, when you and I were talking about that and in, in preparing for those podcasts and that CLE, we talked a little bit about reply briefs, and you had made a comment that. It's not your favorite part of the practice. And I think it was in the context of me saying, I love reply briefs. And I made a note at that point that we needed to come back and talk about reply briefs sometime. <laughs> to really put me in the hot speed, or hot uh, seat, right? To say, okay, well, why do you not like them? <laughs> well, shows are no good without conflict, right? <laughs> right. Well, uh, so today we're just going to talk about one very narrow aspect of the appellate workflow or the appellate process or reply brief. And I wanted to just get out a little bit of the mechanics. Probably a lot of people who are, who are listening to the podcast know this, but that's rule 9.210. Uh, a reply brief is permitted for appellants or uh, petitioners uh, as a response to the answer brief. And there are some special requirements. Uh, it's limited to 15 pages. And the rules specifically set out the content. They say that... Uh, the brief shall contain argument and response and rebuttal to an argument presented in the answer brief. And then the usual table of contents, table of citations, certificate of service, uh, certificate of compliance, that sort of thing. So um, it's it's kind of a – the rules set out a, a limited purpose uh, and sort of a limited content of the appellate brief or the reply brief, which is kind of interesting. So, Chris, maybe one of the first things we should talk about is uh, – a reply brief is not required. The rules make it optional for the appellant to file a reply brief. Uh, so it kind of leads to the obvious question, do you ever forego a reply brief? Or would you ever not file a reply? Uh, you know, I have been tempted to. I'm sure that that probably many of the appellate judges would prefer that we <laughs> didn't uh, file a, a reply brief always because uh, I know that adds to their reading. Uh, which has gone into the consideration of it, of whether or not to do that. But I, I'm always too afraid of the potential stigma of not filing a reply brief that, that as if I'm somehow, even though the rules don't provide it, I don't think necessarily the case law provides this, but as if I'm, somehow I'm, I'm conceding the points that the uh, appellee made in his his or her answer brief. Yeah, no, I get that. And, and, and obviously you're not, but it, it's just as advocates, it's uncomfortable for us to uh, not take an opportunity at, at advocacy when we have it. Um, you know, I think I can only think of a couple instances where I have waived a reply and 
I think that they were all pro se, um, you know, type situations where there was just really nothing to be said and, and, and no valid argument raised. And so I, I, I didn't want to trouble the court with more, but it, it, I agree with you. There are probably more instances where we should waiver apply because we're not really raising issues that are in response, you know, new issues in response or whatever, but it's just hard to do. Yeah. And I was going to say the pro se would probably be the context of it. I just, I can't think of a case where, where I was the appellant and an appellee was pro se, you know, usually it's the other way around the appellants pro se and, and, and the appellee is represented by me and, and, in which case we wouldn't have a reply. Right. Yeah. So one thing I, I have uh, been told is that if you are going to uh, forego a reply brief, it's probably courteous to let the clerk of the court know so that they're not just waiting on a reply brief or think you were late, uh, you know, probably a, a, a call or whatever to advise them that you're not filing is probably a good idea. Yeah, I think that's probably I think that's great advice, especially because the clerk, as I understand it, will. Um, um, well, I guess it, I don't know. Does it get assigned right after the answer brief, or do you think, or do you, or do they wait the fifteen day period? Yeah, I've always heard. I feel like that, I've heard two different things. I've, I've always heard that it's not until the case is perfected when you know all all the briefing is closed. Right. That's what I thought. That's what I believed too. And, and, uh, so I think it's a good idea to, to at least file some sort of notice or make a phone call. I know that in the U S Supreme court that there's actually a form for that <laughs> and that no intent, it's usually a no intent to file a response, at least in respects to a petition for certiorari. So, right. um, it's probably a good idea. Yeah. yeah. Waiving that response for jurisdictional brief is usually advised in the Supreme Court, but that's a topic for a whole other show, right? <laughs> that's true, yeah. <laughs> there we go. I'm making a note. <laughs> uh, a lot of the issues, maybe with drafting or apply brief, uh, seem to be caused by the page limits. Uh, you are limited to 15 pages, and of course the required elements, the tables and the certificates and stuff don't count against that page number, but... Um, one thing that's interesting is the rule doesn't specifically require a summary of argument. And I generally do not use one in a, in a reply brief. I, I don't see any reason why you couldn't include a summary of argument, but given the page length uh, limitations and such, I generally do not. Uh, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I don't either. Uh, and I rarely have seen it. Usually I've seen it in those who uh, don't, practice a lot in the appellate courts and and probably think that it's required because it was required in the initial and answer brief but uh i i don't think a formal summary is required but i do typically include some form of introductory which kind of serves as a summary uh and you but but at the same time not because it's usually focused on zeroing in on what the answer brief failed to address or failed to address adequately to truly sort of drive that point home in a very short, succinct way. And then to set up the roadmap of what I intend to address of what the answer, uh, what the appellee addressed in his answer brief or her answer brief. And I'm curious, how do you feel about a conclusion? The rules don't require a conclusion. Um, if we are certainly following the, the spirit and just sort of the generally accepted practice, a conclusion in your initial brief would have been, you know, usually pretty short, uh, 
just reciting the relief that you are requesting. Would you repeat that in your reply brief or only if you have space? How, how do you handle that? You know, I think you need something. And I think a good reminder of what you're asking for is probably uh, a good idea. I know that even in regular briefing, I've uh, meaning non-reply brief, like principal briefs, I've gone through uh, sort of a roller coaster love hate relationship on how in depth I want my conclusion to be. Is it just focused on the um, the relief I'm asking for? Is it sort of summing up the major points? Uh, usually, I kind of zero in on three or four sentence that kind of sums up the major points and includes with the last sentence being and therefore you should reverse for and remand for further proceedings or reverse and remand for entry of judgment in my favor, whatever is appropriate. But I do think you need some sort of conclusion at a minimum say, wherefore for all the reasons and the briefs of the initial and the, and the reply, you know, rule in our favor. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes, I think that makes sense. And obviously the, the, the length of that can depend on how much space you need, right. Or how much space you have left, which space is usually at a premium. Right. Hey, before you before you move to the next topic, one thing that uh, I'm curious about is: uh, Do you ever, in your reply, address statements uh, in the facts of the answer brief, or somehow summarize what you what you're more likely your client than, is concerned about than usually the practitioner at that point of misstatements? perceived misstatements maybe is a better way of saying yeah. it. Yeah, I, I think that that's fair game for a reply brief. And and that I guess that's kind of getting into my – that's segueing into my next topic anyway. Um, the the argument is supposed to be in response and rebuttal to the answer brief, right? So it should be limited in scope. It shouldn't be just a regurgitation of the initial brief. If that's what you're doing, you shouldn't probably be filing a reply. But – I, I do think that uh, those kinds of things, uh, you know, correcting or expanding upon misrepresentations is fair. Um, it's like you said, a lot of times something a client really wants. You know, I do try to be careful about how I phrase those things. Um, I try not to be too accusatory or, or imply any sort of uh, malicious intent, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, to to those things, but uh, I, I I try to correct those things in a way that is you know clear, but not necessarily trying to um, you know go after the other side too hard. And that makes sense. And and, and I'm not trying to by asking a follow up question. I'm not trying to take over your uh, the interview <laughs> here right. and switch the host. No, but uh, <laughs> do you do that embedded in your arguments, or do you have a separate? beginning section that says, you know, you know, correction of facts or something like that. I don't like to separate it out like that. Like it's, you know, yet another statement of the case statement of the facts. I, unless there's some compelling reason not to, I'd prefer to address it in line in my reply. Yeah, I do. That's my preference as well. Yeah. Now I, I do think though that a lot of folks don't uh, honor the spirit of this rule you know, that there are a lot of times where we get reply briefs that are just another bite at the apple, right? Another repeating the same arguments, the same cases that have been there before. And I honestly, I've never seen a court uh, slap anybody down for that. 
Um, so my question is, do you, do you think that that's a valid strategy? I mean, do you think that um, if you uh, filing a reply brief to essentially, you know, get the last word and, and repeat arguments that you made before, do you think that's a valid strategy? No, I don't. Uh, and I, and my, my hesitancy here is uh, certainly not straight regurgitation. But, you know, this is the part in the beginning of this, you mentioned that I had previously said I, I, I hate replies uh, uh, or I just don't care for them and I struggle with them. This is part of the struggle right here for me is, you know, conceptually, when you go to reply to something, you first feel like you need to set up what you're replying to. So there's, you know, it doesn't come across like as if it's in a vacuum. You want it to be somewhat self-contained in the brief. So there's a certain amount of, for me at least, there's a certain amount of play there that you got to talk about what what was your argument and what was their argument. And now we'll get into why their argument was wrong and ours was originally correct. So there's a little bit of crossover there in regurgitating. But I agree, straight regurgitation without putting the context of their argument in there is certainly uh, should be uh, is ill-advised. I think so, too. And I, and I think the court would notice that. You know, I, I have heard appellate judges say, uh, some of them, obviously, you know, techniques vary. But I've heard some appellate judges say that uh, they, they, want, they read the reply brief first. You know, because it sort of distills what is really the 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 essence of the dispute between the parties, and which kind of makes some sense to me. Uh, and if you're if you're if it's just repetitious, then that's not particularly helpful helpful to the court. Right now, I will to add to that what I would never do if I was in a position of of an app if I was the appellee and and the appellant had just filed a reply brief that simply regurgitated or, or certainly didn't follow the the rules, you know, just limiting it to a response or a rebuttal. I would never file a motion to strike. I, I think uh, I generally don't agree. I don't file motions to strike. I can't say I would never do it, but uh, I, I, I'm always, I always remember uh, uh, Judge Altenburn always saying that why, why do people file motions to strike? And it's just basically inviting them to file a better brief. Right. <laughs> right. No, I agree with that. I, I can't remember the last time I moved to strike something. And I think earlier in my career, when I was making decisions that were maybe not as you know as experienced, I might have moved to strike a statement of facts for not having enough record sites or something. Now I recognize I prefer your statement of facts not have a lot of record sites, <laughs> so, right. you know, because yeah. the court will treat it apart- yeah. accordingly. <laughs> exactly. And, it, of course, that kind of – goes back to the original question of would you ever feel comfortable not filing a reply? Uh, because there is a certain amount of trust that we know as experienced pilot practitioners that the court will get it. The court will do what's right and and take that under advisement that they haven't complied with the rule or or haven't provided the facts section and, and it, it it hurts their credibility. But it is hard, especially to convince the tr- the client that, hey, we don't need to correct that. We don't need to steep to that level. The court's going to get it. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. They can be reached at www.courtsurety.com or toll-free at 877-810-5525. 
Their contact information is always in the show notes. I suggest you take an opportunity right now, add CSBA's contact information to your own contact list so that you're ready the next time your client needs a court bond. I'm thrilled to have a great company like CSBA as a longtime sponsor of the podcast. CSBA is a national agency, but they're very involved in the local Florida appellate community. In fact, CSBA is a global sponsor of the appellate practice section of the Florida Bar. If you want to learn more about supersedious bonds, check out episode 9 of this podcast, Nothing Rhymes with Supersedious, and an in-depth discussion with CSBA President Dan Huckabay. Next time your client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about. Part of my strategy usually in a reply brief is I do, you know, it is a reply. So part of the way I make sure it comes across as a reply is what you had alluded to. I say, hey, the the, uh, appellee says this, but actually this. You know, so you are um, putting it in the context of, hey, I am, I am responding to specifically what they said. And that's not required. And, you know, it's a matter of advocacy and whatever. But I would like the judge who picks up the reply brief first or who picks up the reply brief before oral argument to refresh their memory or whatever to be able to, you know, read the reply brief and get the gist of, you know, what are the real what are the real things at issue in the case? Right. And that makes sense, especially um, since, uh, you know, in many respects, the reply brief is almost a distilled down version or should probably be a distilled down version of all the briefs. And as you said, sort of the the, uh, the core of what's at issue. And let me ask you this, when we know that the judges like for the headings and general structure of a brief to between the initial brief and answer brief to sort of mirror each other, right? It makes it easier for the court. It makes it easier for the staff uh, that everybody's using this, you know, ordering their arguments in the same way. So essentially that gives the appellant sort of the first shot at how they order the arguments and the appellee generally, unless there's a good reason I have on occasion, but unless there's a good reason you try and parrot that same structure in your answer brief. Um, When it comes back to a reply brief though, we might be making some hard decisions about what we need to respond to and what we don't. Um, does that affect your structure or the order of your arguments? Do you try and preserve the the original brief's order? Uh, what if you're omitting things? How do you handle that? Hmm. Yeah, I I do try to pr- preserve the uh, original structure. Um, I think there probably is a little bit more flexibility at the re- reply stage, especially if the well, especially if the uh, appellee failed to sort of follow the general rule. I'm not sure it's written anywhere, but uh, except in case law, but the general rule of tracking the issues as raised by the appellant. If the appellee has gone off on all different directions, then you know, usually I tr- I highlight that and cite the case that says they shouldn't, and then say so I've reordered them in the correct structure, uh, and and part of that, especially in the court you and I primarily practice in, and the second DCA, part of the reason for that is to make it easier for the staff attorney to build the compilation uh, of the briefs, which typically go issue by issue, going initial briefs, first issue one, initial brief or answer brief, first issue, uh, uh, uh. uh 
and then library first issue. And so helping the staff attorney is, is something that's important to me so that they don't get frustrated. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, I think I have a similar approach. I mean, it, it, in an ideal world when the initial brief and the answer brief have the same structure, then it makes it easy for the reply brief to hold a similar structure, sometimes condensed a little bit because maybe you don't address every point that you did in the other briefs. And if the answer brief goes off on its own, you know, uh, merry way with some other structure, then I think it probably makes sense for the reply brief to address that, you know, to respond to that structure. Um, I will say, and I true confessions now, um, I will occasionally use footnotes, uh, but the footnotes are really uh, solely for the staff attorneys. <laughs> if I think that the structure is not clear uh, for whatever reason, because I can't, you know, uh, because of issues created by the, by the uh, Apple I will occasionally drop a footnote off a head off a heading and say this argument corresponds to you know X subheading in the initial brief and X subheading in the uh, in the answer brief just to give the staff attorney some idea where to stick that <laughs> in the right. In the well, bench you know, Dwayne, I can't absolve you of your sin there. Uh, <laughs> you can only get that sort of absolution from your, from your judge, but another alternative way of doing that. And I, I cause I've done that too, to be honest, but uh, the, another way to do that is to maybe put it parenthetically in the heading. Uh, if you've already got a heading and then you say, you know, responding to, answer brief sections, blah, blah, blah. That could be another way to highlight that if you really wanted to try to avoid the sin of a footnote. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I will, I will admit, but, you know, I always thought that, uh, yeah, as a former law review editor, I love footnotes. Um, I, I don't like footnotes in the Brian Garner sense of loving footnotes. I don't like, in fact, I was just reading a brief today where every authority was in a footnote. I hate that. Uh, I don't, I don't like that at all. But to me, you can occasionally use a footnote if it's the kind of thing that you don't care if nobody reads it. Does that make sense? Right. <laughs> I always, pres- yeah, I always no, presume I, yeah. if I if I drop a footnote, it's usually for some structural reason like that. And it's usually with the understanding that nobody may ever read this footnote and that's okay. Right. And, and we're, we, we may be starting off into a new uh, podcast for your future one. You might want to make a note right. of this, but for footnotes, but uh, I, I'm actually, I, I agree with what you said. I agree that we should not do footnotes primarily because I know that's what the judges want in, at least in Florida. Uh, but I actually do agree with Brian Gardner that I wish that our sentences weren't cluttered with case citations and, and, and it could just make readability so much better. But I understand the concern. A judge doesn't want to have to keep looking up, looking down. What I wish we had the ability to do, and I just don't have the technical savvy to do it, is something like where you have on Kindle, where you, you push the little footnote button and it just sort of pops up, hovers on the page, and you can clear it. Then you wouldn't have to look up, look down, and you could you could move the, the, the those cluttery case citations to the footnotes. <laughs> You know, yeah, I guess we are on a tangent here a little bit, but uh, I, 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 what I don't like about that style is that I, to me, the the case citations are a part of the persuasion of the argument. So when you write a sentence and and cite to it, I want to, 
I read that, right? I want to know, even if I don't read the case, I want to see, is there a case or is it a secondary authority that you're citing me to here? Is it a recent case? Is it a Florida case? Is it a second DCA case? So I feel like I'm constantly, you know, looking up and down. So it, so it doesn't flow as smoothly uh, to me as, you know, if the things were in line. But, you know, it is interesting. It's a personal preference. And, you know, Garner has a has a really advocates for that type of writing. And I can see it. Certainly, that's it makes a lot of sense for a law review to me. Right, because you're probably not looking at every every footnote, but yeah, it's interesting. Well, well if I may respond, sure, sure. <laughs> even though we're off on a tangent, uh, but I agree with you. Uh, if it's relevant and it's uh, part of the persuasive device, then certainly include like the title of the case, or at least if you know. But if it's a, you know, why do we need you know five fifty two Southern Second? You know, that that's certainly not part of the persuasive device. I could see maybe including the date and the court, uh, you know, as the second district said in, in the 1968 case of blah, 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 and then go right on into it and drop a little footnote for the, 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 the actual full site, which is, I think, uh, you know, it's cleaner then. But I, I do understand we're kind of in a off on a tangent. Right. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> you know, I, w- what I like about reply briefs, I like the fact that they are limited in scope uh, and limited in length, you know, just from a, from a, you know, professional undertaking. I, I like it. I like the challenge of reducing the argument to its essence and making some hard choices about what you're going to put in and what you're not going to put in. You know, when you have 15 pages, you have to be sure that every sentence has meaning and has some punch and forward, you know, furthers your argument. So, uh, it, it, it does make, you have to make hard choices, but that's kind of what I like about it. You know, I, I like the, um, I like the closed parameters and, you know, here it is, you got 15 pages, you have limited elements and content, you know, go make it fit. <laughs> right. Well, I am in kind of a closed universe because probably by that point, unless the Apple raised something new, like preservation of error or something, the, the case law is, is pretty much probably been exhausted or unless a new case came out. So it's also a closed universe. I, I, I like that aspect of the reply. Well, what is it that you don't like about reply briefs? <laughs> I, I think the biggest thing I don't like about reply briefs is that usually and maybe this is a more inherent problem with everybody being so busy and needing extensions of time. But by the time the reply brief is, by the time I get their answer brief, it's usually been two or three months since I wrote the initial brief. And I have to, in some respects, start over. (laughs) And I hate that. And it's Mm, the same thing. mm -hmm. It's the same struggle with oral argument, which I think we talked about in, in, in episode 15, is having to re-figure it all out and remember it be as smart as I was when I wrote the initial brief in order to respond and go right after their, the Apple's answer uh, uh, briefs arguments and, and, and that delay. That is probably my biggest frustration with reply briefs. I, if I may, I don't want to, if you wanted to jump in there, but I have a second point. No, go ahead. The second reason why I hate reply briefs, and it's kind of mixed with that first is that, um, you know, I, I struggle with the time element and, and the expense to the client because you, you, you know, to write something short and to write it effectively, uh, it, 
takes time. And I, I don't remember whether it was uh, Winston Churchill or, 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 or someone else who said, sorry, my, sorry, something, if I had more time, I would have made a shorter note or something like that. I know there's a famous saying out right. there and that that's true too. And I hate that aspect of it. I wish I could, you know, just, I feel like the client gets it and he's like, it's 15 pages. Why did it take you that long? But it, <laughs> it's a disconnect between uh, uh, the person who often is hiring you because they're not a writer and the, uh, the writer's effect. Yeah. No, all that makes, all that makes perfect sense. And, and I do, um, I, I agree with you on both points, I guess. Uh, you know, I, I don't have the, I envy some of my colleagues that have the uh, steel trap memory that can, you know, really put themselves back in the position they were in a couple months before. That's, that's hard for me too. Um, I generally try and take notes when I'm writing the initial brief. Um, and then I'll add to those notes when the answer brief comes in, I'm always anxious to read it, uh, or eager to read it, I guess. And, uh, I will make notes at that point. And then usually, you know, two weeks later, I'll start on the reply brief. So that helps a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, when I sit down to do a reply brief, I always start by reading the initial brief then the answer brief and trying to get myself back into the, the headspace. Yeah, that's exactly how I do it as well. Except I also will read it based on the issues between the initial and answer brief, just so that I can see them really match up. Uh, and then, um, you know, it helps put it more in perspective, especially if there's a lot of issues. Now, in some instances, when we have a cross appeal, we get an additional element, which is your reply becomes a part of your cross answer brief. Um, and then after that, there's a cross reply brief. So we get a little bit, um, things can get a little bit muddled. Do you, do you approach reply briefs any different when it's a reply slash cross answer brief? To me, the the whole like outline of the briefs is a little weird in terms of whether it's the the cross answer, cross initial, or cross reply, cross answer. Uh, do you, you know, for me, it's like, well, do I? I take a whole new, do I separate the headings to where it's like, okay, now I'm talking about the cross reply. Uh, and then here's Roman numeral one starting over uh, issue one of, of that, you know, or do you just keep the Roman numerals going and it's all self-contained within the same argument section? That's generally the latter is what I generally do instead of making an entirely separate top level heading. Uh, I just keep it rolling in terms of like Roman number one through four might answer might be might concern the 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 cross or the I've got me confused in terms of <laughs> I know it gets the, confusing. the uh the, the the reply brief and then Roman numerals uh, five through seven might be the cross answer part of the brief or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Okay, but do you actually put in a a subhead so that you're separating out the reply from the cross answer section, even though you're maintaining the numbering? The only reason I would do that, I think, is if if the if the pay, if I was really close on the pages, if it wasn't clear that that's what I was doing, mm-hmm. and I needed to like if the 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 fifteen pages that you're afforded for the uh for the the cross or for the reply part, uh. Was spill look like it could be spilling over into the thirty five pages you're entitled to to the cross answer brief. Uh, then I might put a clear heading so that 
the uh, court can see I'm not violating the rules. But if it's pretty clear that the first two issues related to the reply are only 10 pages and then I've jumped into my cross answer brief, then I won't. Hmm. See, that's interesting. Now, I, I think in probably every instance, I have clearly delineated uh, this is my reply and this is my cross answer with a with a heading that you know appeared in the table of contents and that sort of thing. Um, I guess I'm not adverse to doing it a different way and the rules certainly don't require that, but that's always been my approach. I've always thought maybe that's what the judges are expecting, but but it's interesting. It's just two different approaches. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, I think like we talked about before uh, in, in, in episode 12, yeah, I think we both came from a, a started our careers out without necessarily a mentor. So maybe that's just lack of mentoring <laughs> on my part. I just said, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. It makes the most sense. Yeah. I just seems to, you know, in terms of readability, it seems more self-contained and broken up that way. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now you had alluded to, I wanted to talk about the page limits the page limits get very confusing to me when there's a cross appeal. I mean, it, ostensibly it's 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 clear in the rules, but it, the interaction is weird. So, you know, an initial brief you get your fifty pages. In the answer brief slash cross initial brief, you get eighty five pages. And then when you file your reply slash cross answer brief, you get fifty pages, but up to 15 of them can be related to the reply. So you have, right. you have an interesting um, strategic decision to make there because you can use all 15 pages in reply and only have 35 pages for your cross answer substantive arguments, or you can use five or 10 pages for your reply and use more. So it, it's an interesting it's an interesting interaction between the two. And then the cross reply gets 15 pages. So it, it kind of makes sense in that both sides get a hundred pages, but, right. but the way it's divvied up seems a little odd to me. Well, especially when you compare the, the, the rule with respect to the answer brief, uh, uh, cross initial where I think it's more clearly delineated. Right. I mean, I, I don't have it in front of me, but uh, yeah, I agree. It's, it's, not more than meaning you could use less, but then you, you get more pages um, for the cross answer brief. Candidly, I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't been in a situation where I've had too many cross appeals. So uh, and in those I have had, I I've used the 15 and then <laughs> never had the opportunity to actually be uh, uh, shorter and give more to the cross answer brief. But well, and it's interesting because in the reply cross answer, they say, you know, 50, but no more than 15 in the answer brief cross initial brief. It's just 85 pages. So you can decide if you want to write 75 pages as your answer brief and 10 as your cross initial brief, you can. Uh, so it's just, That's true. it's an interesting distinction in the rules. I, I'm curious about how we, how we got there, but it's been that way for a long time. Uh, and right. by the way, we should say I'm I'm not advocating ever <laughs> writing an 85 page brief. You know, it happens, uh, <laughs> but uh, certainly not my certainly not my preference. Uh, you know, it, along those same lines, and I meant to mention this a few minutes ago when we were talking in general about page length and and the reply briefs page length of 15 pages. I've actually. Uh, 
I can't remember where I read this, but I read, I think one of the uh, Florida judges wrote this in, in, in some article that I was reading the other day. And it said that there's a, there's an inverse metric between the length of the reply and the effectiveness of it. So the shorter it is, the more effective. In other words, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not obviously doing that quote justice, but uh, the point of it was, is the shorter and the more effective. But candidly, I, despite the fact that I know that I'm usually still brushing up to the 13, 14 or 15 page reply briefs, partly because I feel the need to set it up. Yeah. <laughs> like we talked about with, here's what I said, here's what they said. Here's why that's wrong, which takes up more pages. Yeah, I am always in favor of shorter is better. I know every every judge at every seminar says shorter is better. And, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time with my writing trying to eliminate unnecessary words and sentences and pages and, you know, to get things down. But that so that makes that does make a lot of sense to me. But I. You know, I shudder at the idea of an 85-page answer across initial brief, but I'm sure I probably filed one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I know I would shudder at having to read that if I was a child. <laughs> for sure. For sure. You, you, you better be very entertaining and have a lot to say. Exactly. Exactly. Now, um, as an appellee, when you get a reply brief – that contains something worrisome to you, you know, misrepresentation of the law or the facts or whatever, what, what do you do then? Right. The reply brief uh, we're assuming is the end of the line. So uh, what now? You know, um, well, first off, in some respects, the, 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 uh, the, the rule change that happened a few years ago that allows for a person to request oral argument up to uh, 15 days after the uh, reply brief. I think that was, a, I was a game changer because then you don't necessarily have to do anything other than ask for oral argument. If it was, if, if what was said in the reply was so dramatic that you, you as the appellee feel like you need to address it. I mean, I think that really kind of alleviated some of the, because otherwise you were scrambling to file it at the, on the same day that you got your reply brief and, and the hopes that, that that would still be considered timely. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. That was a that was a terrible timing in the rule to have to decide, mm-hmm. you know, for the, for the OA request to be due the same day as the reply brief. Um, it was counterproductive for sure. Right. Uh, people probably right. filed notices that they didn't, didn't need to, or, you know, might have, might have better thought. So yeah, no, that is a great change that you can, you've got 15 days to evaluate, but I do think for the most part, your, you know, your recourse, uh, if you don't like the reply brief is to file a request for oral argument, because there's probably not a lot else you can do. Right. And, and, and I mean, as we mentioned earlier, I certainly certainly wouldn't invite them to file a better reply brief by filing a motion to strike. But you know, the, this kind of also goes back to evaluating what is the problem with the reply brief. Is it a substantive problem where they've raised an issue that you that either is new and but still related to everything that is that just been unaddressed? Is it just entirely new issue? Because if it's an entirely new issue, the court's going to know what to do with that because that's improper. And that comes in that goes with the the experience of trusting that the judges are going to know that that's improper and not pay any attention to it. Right, right, exactly. 
plus at the minimum, as I when I try to convince my uh, uh, clients that hey, I know this is a new issue, we don't need to spend the money on oral argument, we don't need to move to strike. Let's just let the judges do what they do. Well, I usually remind the the uh, uh, the uh, uh, client that, and if for some reason they don't do what they're supposed to do, we have a motion for rehearing, which. That would be the perfect purpose because it would be overlooking the fact that the case law says you can't raise new issues in a reply. Yeah, no, that's a good point. What do you think about a notice of supplemental authority? If, if the if the issue is uh, a legal issue or a misrepresentation of a case, do you ever file a notice of supplemental authority to address something that came up in a reply brief? If I only file notices of supplemental authority if it's a new case that came out uh if it's just to serve as a as a as a as a uh uh a wolf in sheep's clothing so to say to come across like as if it's a, a sir reply but it were labeling it a notice of of supplemental authority i wouldn't file it for that purpose if, if i i just wouldn't i would just ask for oral argument yeah yeah i think i tend to agree i see people do that but i think you're right it is um if if you're filing something, you know, a, a case that is not something that's even close to new <laughs> in connection with the case, it does sort of smack of a, uh, a sir reply with no argument, which is, of course, not, right. not allowed. Right. As I'm thinking this through, there was one time where I, I, I did use, now that I'm thinking about this, I think I did use a notice of, of, uh, of supplemental authority to respond to a new quasi new issue. It was raised in the reply, but I, but I still found a new case that had addressed that since the reply. Ah, There you go. (laughs) So that was how I got around my, you know, I'm not going to do it just to do it. Oh, see, that's very clever. (laughs) Yeah. As long as we're talking about replies. Now these are not reply briefs, but um, uses the same word. What about replies to motions? So this is a little bit different topic, but you know, in the appellate process, uh, we have we can file motions. Uh, motions, you're entitled to a, a file response uh, within 15 days. The opposing party opposing the motion can file a response. I have uh, attorneys ask me all the time about replies. Can we file a reply? And of course, the answer is not without leave of court. Uh, right. You can ask for leave, but. Um, What's what's your general feeling on replies to motions? You know, my general feeling has actually been changing a little bit lately. Um, for the longest time, I would simply tell the client, no, you can't do it. I mean, there, there's a case, I think it's from the 4th DCA, which is one of the few cases that, that talk about replies. And it specifically says they're not authorized by the rule. Uh, and, and we generally do not consider them. Uh, of course, in that case, they did end up considering it because it was a. They, they said, "Well, we're going to take an exception here," so it sort of left open the door. Uh, but and, but I have always believed, hey, they're they're never considered. They're not taken. Uh, the court doesn't care for them, uh, et cetera. But recently, I have seen others doing it and finding success at it. And then, in response, I did it, and I'm sort of one and one at this point. <laughs> I've done it twice. I I was successful the first time, but not, of course, partly I was successful the first time because uh, the other side had already done it and been granted it. And, and, and it was, a, it was about, a, it was a dueling motion um, for attorney's fees where they filed theirs. I filed a response. They asked for a reply. And then at the same time they asked for a reply, they filed a motion for attorney's fees. And uh, 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 um, 
and and I filed a resp- or I'm trying to remember the scenario, but uh, basically it was all within the context of dueling motions for attorney's fees. And maybe that's more of a of a uh, uh, higher chance that you're going to be allowed to file a reply because those are certainly more substantive matters and, and things can unexpectedly show up in there. But uh, I'm seeing it more and more. Yeah. Now I'm curious, when you file a motion for leave to file a reply, do you attach the reply, the proposed reply? Uh, I... I do. I, 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 yeah. The first time I don't think I did. I think I just asked for leave. Uh, and, but I, I think that it's more effective to go ahead and include And, and just as an aside, if you're going to ask, for, if you're going to do that, then it should be like very clear. I want to file a three page reply mm-hmm. and it should be as very narrow and tight, even maybe identify these are new issues that were raised in the response. And I would like to identify, I would like to respond to those in three pages. Uh, and that's that'll increase your likelihood of being allowed to do that. And but then I would attach a copy of what you filed too, or what you want to file. I think you have to give them something to consider, right? Instead of just mm-hmm. a, a a request for a reply with no particular explanation as to why is is not is not going to be very helpful. I think you either right. at a minimum have to be specific, or perhaps uh, attach the the uh, proposed reply. I'm assuming the way the court works that if the, you know, if if that motion is not granted, the merits panel probably doesn't review that anyway. But um, you know, I'm not sure it's like a, uh, I'm not sure it's a I don't know if shortcut is the right word, but you know, a, a hack <laughs> to get the right. to get the reply in front of the court anyway, because I think that they probably won't look at it if that if that motion is not granted, but. Yeah, I guess I, I have a similar approach. I mean, I, I always start with the idea that replies are not uh, not allowed, and I generally tell my clients that. And sometimes when we're filing motions, I, I tell them, you know, right up front, we, we don't have a right to reply. That's just how appellate courts work. But, you know, I guess I wouldn't – I'm not adverse to asking for permission to reply, and, and you know, it, it happens on occasion. But I have to have a really good reason. You know, and I'm, I'm sure you probably feel the same way. It's 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 something that's out of the ordinary. It's not par for the course, and you know you can you can try. Right, right. I agree. I agree. It certainly shouldn't be abused. It should be few and far between. Definitely. Well, Chris, that's been great. I think that we've we've talked about almost all the things that one could talk about uh, when it comes to reply briefs. <laughs> Have I missed I think anything? You're right. <laughs> I, I hopefully 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 we still have some listeners <laughs> <laughs> that's right well you know if you're geeky enough to listen to the podcast you're probably interested in reply briefs <laughs> that's true or at least why uh, uh somebody would hate them so much no i'm just joking <laughs> that's right chris thanks for your time i really appreciate you uh being on the podcast yet again and uh happy to be here well, i'm you. sure we'll find some time again in the future to see uh, what else we can uh very mildly disagree about <laughs> cordially uh, disagree <laughs> yeah i i thank you for having me and i look forward to coming back thanks thanks to chris donovan for being on the podcast yet again his biography and contact information are in the show notes Remember, podcasts are never legal advice, and nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. 
But if you're a lawyer that needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. My contact information is also in the show notes. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information also in the show notes. Please take a moment, add it to your contacts so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. The next episode will release in two weeks. I hope that you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal. 